want to start talking to you guys a little bit about um, my first year here. I know it's not been quite a year yet, but it's been kind of crazy. Uh, well, these last two weeks especially have been kind of crazy, at least for my family. But um, it's probably been a crazy ride for you um, with me, uh, being your pastor. Uh, I, I kind of have this habit of um, not letting moss grow underneath of my feet, <laughs> you know, uh, so everybody sometimes feels like, wow, we're going 500 miles an hour, and uh, that's just how God designed me. You know, that's just how he made my mind, and, uh, and I'm sure it's been a crazy ride for everyone. It's probably been a crazy ride for several reasons. I mean, first of all, when I came, I was a virtual unknown to everyone, really including our elders. I mean, our elders didn't know me from Adam. I mean, how much can you really know somebody in an interview process? Let's just be honest. You know, not very much. That's right. You know, not very much. I mean, you know, the good thing about our interview process is when I went through it with the elders is I said, look, here's me. Here's my problems. Here's my issues. Here's my struggles. Here's all these things. Here's my warts. You know, let's not date each other and show our best side. Let's like be idiots with each other and show our worst side and see if we can deal with each other's worst side. And so we all agreed to that and uh, and to kind of just be ourselves and be who we were. But I mean, the reality is, you know, even on a several month interview process, we meet together and yeah, we have some long elder meetings and we had some long interviews, but I mean, come on, in, let's say the whole interviewing time took 20 hours. How much can you really get to know somebody in a 20 hour period? I don't think a lot. And then you uh, couple the facts, so I'm a virtual unknown for everyone, including the elders. And then I'm different than every pastor you've ever had. And I don't care where you went to church, I guarantee you I'm different than every pastor you've ever had because there is no pastor anywhere that is the same. I love this, not really, can you tell I'm sarcastic here? I I love this idea that people have that there's like some job description in the scriptures for a pastor. But it's not there. I mean, I had one guy tell me one time, he said, so I'd say, you know, I said to him, so what am I supposed to do as a pastor? He goes, I don't know. You're the pastor. You know what the Bible says. And I said, um, no, I don't know what the Bible says. Would you tell me what it says, what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor? Because he was upset about something. And this guy wasn't here. Um, not that anybody here has never been upset at me. But, he, you know, he's, he, I'm like, you have an idea in your head of something I'm supposed to be doing. You need to tell me what it is. Because I don't know what it is. There's no, this is what a pastor does. It's just not there. There's all these different descriptions of what ministry is and and how all this works, but sometimes people have it in their head that to be a pastor, you have to have a certain gift mix, spiritual gift mix. And every person's certain spiritual gift mix is different. You know how? Why it's all different? Because everybody had this favorite pastor who had this particular gift mix that really connected with them. And so because he really connected with, with them, they're like, okay, this is what a pastor's supposed to be. But the reality is God wires every one of us uniquely different. And, and me more so than others. I mean, let's just be honest. I, I realize I got a lot of warts. Um, but so I'm different than every pastor you've ever known. And then nobody knows how I'm going to react to stuff. I, I know that as I first came and I'm, there is no doubt about it. I project a level of confidence 
in my preaching and in my speaking and all of those things. And so people don't know how I'm going to react when challenged. And so in the beginning when I first got here, people were kind of nervous about coming and talking to me. So I started asking this question as people started talking to me. When they get done, I try to ask a lot of clarifying questions. Hey, uh, how do you, uh, how, do you feel like I listen to you? And if they'd say yes, I'd go, sweet, go tell other people. You know, because people don't know how I'm going to react. You know, how's he going to react when we come to talk with him? Is he going to, is he going to freak out on me? Is he going to yell at me? Is he, is he going to just sit there with his arms folded? I mean, what's he going to do, right? And, and so it's, it's nerve wracking. How am I going to relate to you? Am I going to be able to understand where you're coming from? All those kind of things. Again, these virtual unknowns. How am I going to minister to you and more importantly, with you? Because I do want to minister to you, but if I'm just ministering to you, something's wrong because we're supposed to be ministering with each other to other people. It's supposed to be a team, right? So how am I going to do all that? And again, it's, I'm different than every pastor, so it's very different, right? And so it builds a, inside of us a lot of anxiety. I mean, it seems like a really good idea on paper to call me as your pastor. But the reality is, it's, it kind of starts getting sketchy as soon as I get my feet on the ground. Or as we would say in the army, boots on the ground, you know. We get boots on the ground and woo, wow, everybody's different and, you know, and, and look at what's happening here. And then it, it always blows me away. Um, I've, I've pastored at this point two established churches. Both times, as soon as I became the pastor of the church and was officially installed, people came up and started like deferring to me in, in certain things. And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, they're like, hey, pastor, where should we put this? Hey, Pastor, what was you, I, I don't know, man. I'm new here. You know, so it's just one of those things. So it's even awkward for me. I mean, how well can I know you guys, right? It takes a while to build those relationships. They say, and, I, and they say, and I don't believe it. I think it's a damnable lie, okay? But they say that it takes a pastor three to five years to connect with his congregation and really get to know them. Now, even though that is true, in a lot of instances, I, the reason I think it's a damnable lie is because it doesn't have to be true. Yes, it takes a while to get to know each other, but I mean, come on, three to five years? I mean, somebody might die in that time period. I mean, if we just open up and be honest with one another and vulnerable with one another. And, and so a lot of people wonder, why do you talk about certain things? Why do you share your sin struggles? Why do you do all those things? I'm trying to be vulnerable. I'm trying to set, set the stage for you to be comfortable to open up to me by opening up to you and letting you know what's going on inside of me. It's not that I'm proud of my sin life in the past. It's not that I'm proud of my sin struggles now. It's a way to say, hey, let's not take three to five years because in this three to five years we have people that we love that are dying and going to hell and we're too busy kind of dancing with each other to get to know each other, right? But all of this is understandable, right? And I just want to speed it up. You know, I just want to speed the process up. Hopefully, as we approach the one-year mark, people are feeling like, okay, I, I can work with this guy. I, I hope you feel like you've got a lead pastor that you can trust. I hope you feel like that you've got one that you can talk to, one that you can follow. And, and if not, that's okay. We're still going to keep working at it, okay? It might take three to five years with you, and I'm not condemning you if it does. We're all different. We're all geared differently. You're thinking, like, what does this have to do with the book of Hebrews? Trust me, it does. It's got something to do about it with it. Big time, big time. Okay, so either way, either way it goes. If we can get it all done in the first year and, and get that connection being built and get that strong foundation of a relationship or not, 
The reality is we're getting ready to face this all again. For those who may not be aware, we've called John Spriggs as our associate pastor, and he and his wife, Laura, have accepted the call. So, ah, man, we just barely even know Jerry. How are we going to know John? Is this guy going to be able to relate to us? Are we going to like him? Will he fit in? Is he going to change things that we love? I just got over the anxiety of Jerry showing up. And now John's coming. Ah! Can I just be honest with you for a moment? Gets me a little anxious too. It gets me a little anxious too as I consider John coming. Right? It gets me a little anxious too as I consider getting to know a congregation in that year or two years or three years. I don't know how people are going to react. I mean, there are people still in our congregation when they talk, I can't tell if they're joking or serious. You know? And, I, and I'm like, they walk away and I go, were they, were they pulling my leg? Or, or was that for real? <laughs> you know? Just like the way they say, you know? I mean, some people sometimes be coming, they'll be serious and mad and they're smiling. You know? And you're like, I think they're I think they're teasing. Oh no, they were serious. Okay, gotcha. You know, and then others come and they're like, Rrr! and I'm like, huh. You know, I think they're serious. And they're like, oh, that dude was just kidding. You know, so anxiety for me too. Amen. So, and then John's coming to the mix, and so now I've got to worry like my own relationship with John. But then I've also got to worry about your relationship with John and how are you clicking with him. And, and inevitably, I know it's going to happen. Something's going to happen that people don't like and they're going to come to me and say something about John to me. I'm going to tell you right now what you're going to get told when you do it. I'm going to ask you this question. Have you personally went in private by yourself, is what in private means, and talked to John? And when you tell me no, I'm going to say, then what are you talking to me for? Go talk to John. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 says your brother sins against you. Go talk to him in private. If you say yes, I'm going to say, okay, have you taken two or three other people who didn't hear your gossipy story about John, but actually witnessed the activity that John did? When you take two or three witnesses, it is the people you told about it. They have firsthand knowledge about it. And if you went and talked to him with two or three witnesses, and if you say no, I'm going to say, okay, go do that. And then when you come and, and the third time, or if you say yes, I'm going to say, okay, now you can bring it to the church and I'm going to give you very explicit instructions on how to bring it to the church. And I'm going to find out, are you wanting John to be put on discipline or are you just trying to figure out how to communicate with John and work it through with him? Because if you want John to be put on discipline, I'm going to tell you, go write a formal charge, we'll submit it to the district and we'll bring John up on discipline charges at the district. Oh, you want to work through and just kind of understand where he's at? Okay, great, we'll sit down with the elders and we'll work it through. You know what I'm saying? And again, that's a kind of a sidebar, but... The whole thing is this is how we work through these kind of things. But it brings anxiety for me because I know, I guarantee you, I've had staff before. At Crossroads Fellowship, I had six staff members. And every time a staff member made somebody angry, they came to me. And in the beginning, I tried to fix all the problems. And then I rapidly figured out that I wasn't Jesus and couldn't fix all the problems. And I said, okay, Jesus can fix it all. And here's what he says on how to fix it. Interestingly enough, 99% of the problems, if you go talk to the person in private, resolve themselves. It's just amazing what happens when we follow what God's Word says.
But so I have anxiety, okay? I have anxiety about this too. Here's the bottom line though. In all of this, because I said Jesus knows how to fix it all, right? So in all of this, we don't have to have anxiety because we have Jesus who serves as the guarantor that all these things that are going to be happening, my coming here, John's being here, all of these things are going to work out for our good. And that's what the scriptures say, that all things work to the, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. E- even when you have a pastor that you don't like, or a pastor that you don't know, or, or dare I say, and I'm going to go a little risque here and then I'm going to backpedal real fast, a, a president or a governor that you don't like. Okay, now I'm going to backpedal because I don't want to talk about politics. But you see what I'm saying? Like all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even the things that we don't like, the things that we don't find uncomfortable, or the things that we do find uncomfortable. Jesus serves as the guarantor in all of this. And he promises to be the stabilizing Element, the st- and, and not that Jesus is an element, but I couldn't think of a better word. He promises to be, I don't want to say force, because then it gets people thinking about, you know, it's just this power thing, it's not really Him. He promises to be the stabilizer in everything. Like His presence, He's going to bring stabilization to the whole process. All of these rapid changes, all of these things that make us so nervous. Jesus promises to be the stabilizer in it. Don't believe me? It's okay. Let's read what God's Word says. Let's read Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 22 to verse 25. Now, some of you are feeling like verse 22 to 25. Okay, he's went back to his old ways. We were like 12, 13 verses in one week. Now he's back down to two or three. So, yes. But let's read this scripture together. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may be reading from a different translation. That's okay. If you want to follow along in the ESV... Reach in the pew in front of you and pull out an ESV Bible. That's what's there now. Um, so you can go ahead and do that. But anyhow, let's read together. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. All of that stuff previously about him with his indestructible life and all of that we talked about in the previous weeks. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues. Consequently, I love that word. So basically saying, hey, and because of all of this, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives and makes intercession for them. I want to read it one more time. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death for continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. A stabilizer. Let's pray. Father, you are awesome. You're really the only, well, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of the Godhead, is the only person in, in all of creation that we can say is awesome. It only rightly fits you. We use it to describe a cheeseburger, how good it is, and all of these things. But Lord, you alone are awesome. 
And we recognize that this morning. You alone are a stabilizing factor. And we we recognize that this morning. You alone are the God of all the universe who says, I guarantee a better covenant and I will be around always to make intercession. So Father, help us to see how you, through your Son Jesus Christ and the person and work of the Holy Spirit, bring stabilization in a crazy, crazy, crazy changing world, even inside of a changing church. And we ask it in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Unfortunately, in America, and in the American church, the tone and direction of the church is subject to the guidance of the professional clergy. Now, I said unfortunately. I'm not suggesting that we're bad, that a pastor leading is bad. But I'm suggesting this. It often goes awry. It often goes awry. I mean, we need to have leaders. We need to have shepherds and all those things. And we understand that. But in the American church, it often goes awry. And I want to explain how it often goes awry. On one hand, pastors, i.e. the clergy are called of God to lead people, giving them guidance and direction. On the other hand, as it goes too far, it seems like in the American church when a pastor retires, resigns, or otherwise leaves a church, many, many people leave with him. Have you seen that trend? If you've recognized that trend in in churches that you've seen, just raise your hand. I just want to know I'm not alone. Like, new pastor, pastor leaves and people are like, well, that's it. I'm out of here. Pastor's gone. I'm done. You know, and and if the pastor lives, stays in ministry close by, like they go to that church. It's really funny because there's a particular denomination around Clarksville, Tennessee. I mean, they're all over the country, but a, the, their presbytery in the Clarksville, Tennessee area actually has it written in their district bylaws that if a pastor leaves a church, he is forbidden from ministering within a 20-mile radius of the church for one year. Because it's become such a problem that they go to a new church, and all of a sudden, half the congregation goes with them. This is, this is leadership gone awry. And now, I don't think the pastors intend it. I know some of you think that maybe they do, but I don't think they do. Maybe that's because I'm on the pastor side of it, and I've seen it happen and it not be intended at all. And the next step is a new pastor comes. And what happens? Even more people leave. And the new pastor spends his ministry at a church trying to bring the church back to the place where it was before the previous pastor left. And then, much to our chagrin... The whole cycle starts over again as this pastor becomes the old pastor who used to be here but now went on to a new ministry position. Right? And the church shrinks and then it shrinks again and then it grows and works its way back to where it was and this just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. A cycle and we, we see it all over the place. We see it all over the country and it's really unfortunate. So how does this happen? Well, the first thing about how it happens i've already mentioned it every pastor has a different style of shepherding the flock every pastor's got a different style of shepherding the flock 
I want you, I don't want you to yell it out because there's too many people here to do it today. I want you to get your favorite pastor that you've had. And you've got to understand, when I say your favorite pastor you had, you can't have watched him on TV. You had to have actually attended services at the, at the building that that pastor preached in. Okay? All right? Get that favorite pastor in your mind. Maybe he didn't even preach. Maybe he was just on staff. You got him in your mind? Okay? He shepherds different than I do, right? There's stuff that he does different. Some of it may be the same. But there are things that you like about that man, or, or sometimes it's a woman, and that's, I'm not going to get into a theological debate on that. I'm just being honest that some of you right now are thinking about a woman, and that's fine. Uh, for this point of our illustration, you've got this person in your mind, and they've got this great stuff about them that you love about them, right? Can I just give you a little piece of freedom here today? It's okay to love them. It's okay to have loved how they have impacted your life. It's okay. As a matter of fact, I'm wrong. It's not okay. It's more than okay. It is a testimony to the ministry, the way that God used that person in your life. And it's more than okay. It's actually quite encouraging that you had a pastor somewhere in life that impacted your life in a significant way that you can muster up an image of this person and you can remember fondly those things every pastor has a different style of shepherding the flock some are passive they they and not passive in the sense of doing nothing but passive in the sense of their leadership is allowing the people of the church to to initiate every kingdom advance I've seen pastors like that, and I've seen people who really connect with pastors like that. That the pastor just kind of sits back, and, and every once in a while kind of serves as a, as a dam or, or, a, or a levee or something just to kind of steer the river just a little bit. You know what I'm saying? But that, you know, he really sits back and he's kind of passive in the whole thing. Some, like me, are more aggressive, constantly seeking new avenues of ministry, encouraging people to engage in those ministries, and, and quickly discarding them if they don't work. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I will kick a ministry to the curb like that. If it's not working, I'm like, what are we dragging it for? You know? Don't, now, as I say all of that, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the first sign of trouble will kick it to the curb. But if we've prayed through it and we know God's not wanting to do that, it doesn't appear that God wants to use this anymore, I'm like, let's get rid of it. Let's quit pouring resources and time and effort into something that, quite frankly, is failing. That's what happens with an aggressive pastor. With a passive pastor, pastor, that doesn't happen. That pastor kind of sits back and lets the people wait. And, and what happens a lot of times, I think, inside of churches, we see churches grow and then begin to decline and then get to the point of closure because they've had too many passive pastors. Too many of them that are passive that are saying, hey, we're sucking the life out of the church. We need to change something. Amen. Uh, one famous pastor, not going to say his name, but... Uh, he talks about the pastors kind of fitting into three different categories. Priest, king, and prophet. Okay? The prophet is the more aggressive kind, the Paul kind. That's like me. That's just like, we need to go this way. We need to go this way. We need to go this way. Then, then the, the, the priest is more like the Barnabas type. That's kind of not, When I say passive, I don't mean that as an insult. I don't mean that as a criticism. It's a bad thing. It's just reacting to what's going on with people rather than aggressively poking and prodding. And I don't mean aggressive negatively either. And then you have the king. That's the one that kind of just kind of 
not in a bad sense, kind of rules over it all. So like a church has a, has a, has a, a lot of times this is the way it works, the cycle works. A prophet comes in, like a prophet pastor comes in and leads the church forward into advancement. And then, and then you have a king who comes in or, or, or a priest who comes in and kind of shifts the mentality of the church a little bit. And so you have this growth and then this leveling off. Or maybe it, maybe the growth slows down and the king's just kind of reigning over it. And then it just completely levels off and you have the, the, the Barnabas type pastor, the, the priest who is there and he's just walking along with the people. And then what happens though is when, when maybe you should get another prophet type pastor, you get another priest type pastor because everybody loves that one. And then things start going down. And if you don't get a profit at some point, things keep going down. I want to commend OCCA and something that I've seen is that the church was growing and doing well, but you guys looked for somebody who would lead to the next level. And it wasn't like, hey, we're satisfied with being here. We need to keep going deeper with God. That's a really good thing. We can talk about that more. But so that's like somewhere in the middle, you know, there's the king. And um, the point is that each pastor is different in how he leads and and inevitably, that pastor is going to attract a different set of people. Now, some of you just cringed. Okay? Right, wrong, or indifferent, the church adds new members based upon how well people can relate to the pastoral staff. Right, wrong, or indifferent, the church adds new members based upon how well people can relate to the pastoral staff. And some of you are cringing about this, and I understand why, because it's like it smacks of this human effort. It smacks of, of, of not being with Jesus. But I mean, let, let's be honest here. Did Jesus go and get the other 12? Or did Andrew? Some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Go read the Gospels about who went and started fetching everybody up. Jesus didn't go fetch up his 12 disciples. He fetched up the initial few and then they went and got some more people. Jesus didn't say, you sit back passively and wait and I will draw everybody in by my Holy Spirit. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? So, yes, it does smack of human, human effort a little bit. I know it rankles some of you, but it doesn't have to. Before I go on and tell you why it doesn't have to, I want to explain why this, pro- why this is part of the problem, though. And it is part of the problem. Many people in the church rotate out when the old pastor leaves and a new pastor comes because the new guy's not the old guy, and, and I don't really like him, and so I'm out of here. Right? It's okay for you to come to church because you like the pastor. It's okay for your friends to come to church because they like the pastor. What's not okay is to keep coming to the church because you like the pastor. And to leave the church when you don't like the pastor. That's when it becomes human effort. We are relational people. We come because of relationships. They might come because they like Mark. Mark's friends are probably going to come to church with Mark because they like Mark. And then they will keep coming because they like whoever the pastor is at that time period. And if you do not go to the next step, which is really critical, they'll leave when that pastor leaves, even though they still really like Mark. So it's okay for people to come because they like the pastor, but it's not okay for them to stay. 
People won't stay long-term, as a matter of fact, because of liking the pastor. That's why it's critical that we change their main connection point in the church. But to what or whom should we change this connection point? To what or whom should we change this connection point? Thank you for asking. I'm going to tell you. We need to disconnect people from us as pastors. And we need to disconnect them from the church leaders. And we need to get them connected totally to Jesus. We need to disconnect people from me. And they need to be disconnected from Keith and Ron. And I'm going to go into lower levels of leadership. And Christy and Stacy. And you name a leader in the church, people need to get disconnected from them. Not in the sense of like, I don't need you, because we all know the, the Sanctus Real song. Oh, oh, we need each other. What's all this fighting for, right? So we do need each other. But we need to be connected to Jesus. When you plant a church or when you come into an established church and it's growing, people are going to come because they like it, because they like the relationships that they have and all of those things. But we cannot let people stay there. Because let's just go, we're going to back up the train just a second and we're going to get it off of pastors and we're going to put it on to elders. Okay? So they come because they like Ron. And they end up not liking me. And Ron's got a strong enough personality that even if they don't like me, well, they like Ron. And Ron's like, well, just, so what? He's an idiot. Let's just hang out and, and worship Jesus anyways. Right? And, and that'll work. But then Ron gets a, a brand new job in California. It happened once. Many, many years ago. <laughs> it happened that, brought, that Ron went to California back, in his, back when he was a young man, not when he's old and crusty now. But... <laughs> That was probably inappropriate, but I'm sorry. I want to say I'm sorry, brother, but I, I, I can't lie. <laughs> no. But anyways, so, so Ron gets this new job and he moves away. And people were here because they liked Ron. And so Ron moves away and they go, well, I, I pretty much don't like the pastoral staff. And I was pretty much like Ron was my connection point. So I got to go find a new church. Not a good thing. I don't want to say that Ron would even agree it's not a good thing. You know, we have to get people off of us and get them totally connected to Jesus. And I want to say this as a, as a encouragement from the Lord. OCCA in recent years has done a good job of this. The proof is in the pudding. When Pastor Terry retired, we didn't lose hardly anybody. I'm not saying we didn't lose anybody. We didn't lose hardly anybody. As a matter of fact, I looked at all the numbers and I've done all the conversations. In the 13 months that you were without a pastor, OCCA grew. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That, that speaks highly of what OCCA has done over the years about getting people connected to Jesus instead of to Pastor Terry, or to this person, or to that person. I'm not saying we haven't lost anybody. I'm saying we didn't lose hardly anybody. A lot of times, churches will lose half their people. And then when I came, there's only been very few people that have left. Yeah, there's been a few. Second week, we had a family leave. Has nothing to do with me. 
I don't care what anybody says. That's nothing to do with me. You don't know me yet. Right? And two weeks in, you don't. You've seen me for an hour and a half. You don't know me. So very few people left. This is strong, strong, strong evidence that we've done well in connecting people to Jesus. And we need to continue doing this. Why? Why do we need to continue doing this? Because eventually every human leader we have will move on. Verse 23 says that. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Church, even if a pastor serves or a leader serves his entire ministry in the same church, they are going to move on eventually. They're going to die. Or get raptured. Right? Or they're going to retire. Or something else. Every human leader we have is eventually going to move on. That's what the scripture says here. And so it's critical that we attach people to Jesus and not to human leaders. Why? Why is that so important? I'm going to keep going on. Because the Jesus, however, is permanently in place as our great high priest because of his indestructible life that I taught on last week. He is permanently in place. I mean, read that in verse 24. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is going to be here for the long haul. The church belongs to Jesus. There's, understand something. One of the things that I will take my time to teach and I will, you, you will start figuring it out probably two or three years in. I pretty much got like three messages that I preach over and over and over again, just different ways. But one of these messages that I preach is that about our stewardship. Stewardship is what I call healthy ownership. Okay. This church doesn't belong to you, but it does belong to you. Like, you're supposed to be committed and say, this is my church and I'm going to do what it takes to see it grow. But at the same time, it's Jesus' church and I'm going to exchange His plans for my plans. And there's like this dynamic tension that's there. It's what I like to refer to as healthy ownership. Like, this is ours to steward over and to take care of and to encourage people and, and to grow, but I can't control it. But I can't sit back and passively let it run amok either. I've got to step in and help and thereby providing some control, but I can't do that with wrong motives and and a controlling, manipulative spirit, thus unhealthy control. See what I mean? It's kind of this dynamic tension that's there. This healthy ownership inside of the church. And why do we have to have that healthy ownership, this stewardship? Because the reality is it's Jesus' church. You are His church. The building that we own as a church, the, the building's not the church. If you think a building is a church, you're theologically, and I'm going to say this in a loving way, theologically you're incorrect. It, it, it's, a, it's a noun in the Greek that refers to people, not buildings. The ecclesia, those who have been called out. Buildings can't be called out. We meet in a facility that in the English language we often refer to as the church, but the people are the church. But we have to steward his property. It's his building. It's his parking lot. 
It's his grass. It's his gymnasium. It's his worship center. We have to steward this. Because he's going to be around forever because of his indestructible life. And we want to hear him say whether we die or whether we're raptured or whatever, when we enter into his presence, good job, well done, my faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. So we steward... And part of that stewarding is getting people connected to see that this healthy ownership means it's his because he's the one who's around permanently. The permanence of his ministry serves as a stabilizer in the local church. That's why OCCA didn't shrink that bad when, when Pastor Terry retired, and that's why it didn't shrink when I came. I mean, I'm not stupid, okay? I know that when I came and people started getting knowing me and, and started hearing me preach and all that, some people were like, I don't know if I can deal with this guy. My wife says it all the time about me. <laughs> so I'm not stupid. God, I've, I've, God has given that woman discernment, and so when she says something about me like that, I, I, I hear it, you know. But Jesus has served as the stabilizing presence. And that's good. And we have to continue to teach that to people. He, his permanence of his ministry is what makes us continue on. It's, it's Jesus that links us from generation to generation to generation. See, if you remember back when I preached, and this is, I expect you to remember my sermons. Really, I do. That's why they're posted online. Even if you forget, go back and listen to them again. We talked about these principles of discipleship and the fifth principle of discipleship was that a disciple goes and makes other disciples for... Let's try it again. A disciple goes and makes other disciples for... Let's try it again. Good, good answer for those who answered it. Now the rest of you know. A disciple goes and makes disciples for... Jesus. Right. Jesus is the continuity. He's the stabilizer. Jesus is the only one that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The pastor is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. The pastor as an individual is not the same. We're all growing and changing as pastors, but the pastor is also not the same in the sense of who's in the office as pastor. Jesus is the stabilizing presence. Why? Why is he the stabilizing presence? His presence stabilizes because he's consistent in his ministry. He is always the same. How He serves us is always the same. How He loves us is always the same. How He intercedes for us is always the same. I mean, read verse 25. Consequently, you know, because He's permanent, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession. I mean, he's able to do the job perfectly because he's always around. He's never going to change. He intercedes for us. He gets involved in our lives. He's there. He's the stabilizing presence. Now, I've really built you up, I hope, that to say that over the past several years, OCCA has done a good job of getting people connected to Jesus instead of getting them staying connected to the pastor or to the person who invited them. 
And you say, so why are you doing this? Number one, because that's the passage of Scripture that we're at. Number two, because sometimes we need the encouragement. And number three, the church is numerically growing. And we have to continue to get people connected to Jesus. It's okay if your friend comes because they like you. It's okay if they hang out a little while because they like me. But we have to be conscious of the fact that we need to move people off of us and onto Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that can save. Jesus is the only one that's going to be here tomorrow. I don't think I'm going to. But maybe I'm going to have some kind of massive moral failure. But Jesus is still going to be around. And he's never going to have a massive moral failure or even a tiny one. We have to move people on to Jesus. We've got to keep doing that. The things that we've done over the past several years, we have to keep doing that. You need to know uh, over the coming years as the pastor, if I see you building uh, people in dependency on you, that I will step in and I will be the guy that I am, which is kind of more aggressive and not so passive. And I will say, you need to stop this. You need to teach these people to get connected to Jesus. They don't need to teach you everything. People often wonder why I don't do a bunch of counseling. It's two reasons. Number one, I'm not a trained counselor. It's unethical for me to counsel. I can give you biblical guidance and pastoral type of counseling, but that's not typically what people want when they want counseling. They want me to seek to help them figure out their deep-seated emotional issues from their trauma from childhood and all that kind of stuff, and it's unethical for me to do that. That's the number one reason. But even if it was, even if I was highly trained in that area, there's another reason. Because Jesus is the one who needs to get involved in that stuff. I need to teach you to hear Him. He is no respecter of persons. He's the great intercessor. My job is to guide you to where you can hear His voice. And likewise, if you're getting people dependent on you and they have to come to you all the time for everything, I'm going to say, stop it. Stop telling them the answer. And start asking them a question instead. People come to me and say, Pastor, what should I do about this? And I look at them and I go, I don't know. What do you think you should do? They, well, well, I'm asking you. And I'm like, yes, I understand you're asking me, but I'm asking you, what do you think God's leading you to do? Well, maybe, why do you think that? Okay, because of this. Where's that out in the scriptures? Where are you basing this on? How have you heard this at a godly council? How have you, and I ask them questions and I ask them questions and I ask them questions. And some people get frustrated at me about that. But other people come back and later on, I notice they're not coming to me so much. And it's not because they don't have issues anymore. It's because I've successfully transferred them from me to Jesus. And they start dealing with those issues with Jesus. Amen? The more dependent we become on Jesus, the less dependent we are on Jerry or Ron or Christy, or fill in the blank. And the more a minister team grows. As we become less and less dependent on one another and more dependent on him, then we are able at that point to turn around and face out and say, great, now it's a team. I'm going to warn you of something that's going to happen in the next 
year. I, I think the word year is the word the Lord's telling me, but maybe two to three years. But it's going to happen. Okay? When a church grows, inevitably these words start flowing. Well, when I first came to the church, everybody was so friendly. And they cared about my needs. And they loved me. But, but people don't talk to me anymore. And, and they, don't, they don't treat me the same way anymore. And they don't do all of that stuff anymore. And this is the advice that I give to those people every single time. You're not the new person anymore. You're supposed to be on the team. You haven't started coming to the team meetings. You haven't been with us in the locker room as we prepared for the game. You came and you got ministered to and and somewhere or another along the way we forgot to tell you that as you become you need to become less dependent on us and when and as you become less dependent on us that means you no longer stand up Kelly. You no longer stand here as a passive recipient of God's grace, but you now come here as an active dispenser of God's grace. You move from being on the receiving side to the giving side where you tap into that direct access you have to God through the Holy Spirit and He comes down and He flows through you and then you're His hands and feet to a lost and dying world. You can have a seat, thank you. It's going to happen. I know it's going to happen because I've been in growing churches and that's what happens. You need to be conscious of this so that when people are saying these kind of things, you can say, time out. It's not that we don't love you. It's that we kind of thought you were kind of on the team. Like we have a good deal of respect for you and we think you have gifts to give and, and we think you have a way to serve and we were kind of thinking you were on the team. It's not that we don't love you, it's actually we love you more. It's not that we don't respect you, it's actually we respect you more and we see you as a valuable team member. It's because we thought we got you disconnected from us and on to Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we don't minister to each other still. But that takes on a different context. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. I, I mean, do you know why most of you are still here at this point? Because you made the transmit... The, the, uh, no, you didn't. <laughs> I started to say the transmission. Uh, no, you didn't. You made the transition from being the new recruit... To being the old timer. How long till a person's an old timer? In a growing church, I know this is going to blow your doors off. In a growing church, six months to a year. If a church is growing the way that we are growing, and I know as you look around this morning, you're like, I don't know, there's probably only like 165 of us here today. I know it looks even smaller than that. It's because there's so many extra chairs. I don't know that we're growing that rapidly. We're probably about 230 people. A year ago, we were about 150 people. We're growing rapidly. And it takes about six months to a year in a rapidly growing church for somebody to to move from passive recipient to dispenser. I'm not saying they move from passive recipient to elder or from passive recipient to staff. But hey, I was a passive recipient, but now I'm serving on the greeting team. Now, 
I'm getting involved in helping prepare for funeral dinners. Now, you see what I'm saying? And we move, we make that transition. And we need to keep that in mind. Because we have to help people make the transition. Because this guy can't do it all. Amen? But don't believe me. I want you to believe Jesus. Homework for this week. Monday, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. You'll notice a pattern here. Tuesday, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 27. Wednesday, John chapter 16, we skipped some verses. Uh, verses 4 through 15. Thursday, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. Noticing the pattern? Friday, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. And then, Saturday, we broke the pattern. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And... The pattern that's being broken here is really kind of cool in Acts. The the verse 13 of Acts is intentional for it to be the last verse you read this week. Because all of these passages you read them are going to talk about Jesus and how he's the stabilizing presence. How he's the one that does all the empowerment. How he's the one who works all this stuff. And then when you read in Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 13, Peter and John are on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And verse 13 is so cool. I'm going to read it to you, but I want you to read it at the end of the week. It'll it'll double impact you when you read it at the end of the week. And here's what it says in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that he had been with Jesus. we got to get everybody connected to Jesus. Because when that verse 13 there, when they were uneducated men, Greek word, idiotai. Seriously, that's the Greek word, idiotai. It's where we get our English word idiot from. I promise you, I'm not making this up. It's too good to make up. I wish I was making it up because then it would be, you know, maybe, no. I, I, it's where we get our word idiot from. So when they recognized these guys were idiots... They shouldn't be able to do all this. They're like, man, it's because they were with Jesus. What an encouragement. What an encouragement that that's been the story of OCCA for the last several years. What an encouragement. Amen? But God wants to continue that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this. We thank you that, that you do take normal, regular, everyday folks like us. And you move us from being passive recipients of your grace to being active dispensers of your grace. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done in previous years as people have done that and and got got folks unconnected, disconnected from us and connected to you instead. And Lord, we pray in the years to come that that trend will continue so that you are glorified and you are honored. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen.